Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the video teaching series, Our Motives from God's Perspective, Part 2. This is lesson number eight in that series. And in this lesson, we're going to kind of summarize uh, some of the things we've been talking about in the last several lessons and then show how they apply to our lives on a daily basis and what that means about where we are in God and what, what needs to happen in our lives. Uh, the title of this lesson is Poverty of Spirit Makes Us Rich in God. Matthew 5 and 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. When we finally come to a place where we recognize and accept our poverty of spirit, the Lord will open our lives up to all the riches of the kingdom of heaven promised to us in the first beatitude. We become riches, rich in God. But what are God's riches? What are God's riches? The riches that make life worth living, that make every day a new adventure, are love, joy, peace, hope, etc. We might not all have access to the same amount of this world's goods, but every one of us has the same access to God's true riches. Luke chapter 16, verse 10, He, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore... You have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon. Who will commit to your trust the true riches? Paul said there are some that suppose that gain is godliness. So if you gain, you're godly. It's in our day called the prosperity doctrine. God's going to make you rich to prove you're blessed. Well, needless to say, and I want to get off the subject, but that is not biblical. Uh, because there are times God blesses people with poverty for their soul's sake. There, sometimes God blesses people with trials and tests and whatever for their soul's sake. So what are the true riches? I do have to be faithful with unrighteous mammon. That's this world's goods. I've, I've got to serve God with everything in my life, including this world's goods. And so... If I am not faithful with that, if I can't be trusted with natural finances and goods to be faithful with God in those, how can he trust me with true riches? And what are true riches? Love, joy, peace, hope, etc. Righteousness, holiness, grace of God, mercy of God, peace of God. All of these things are the true riches of God. We were, we were to receive, uh, let me say that again. In order to receive true humility, we develop a sense of gratitude, a recognition that life is an incredible gift. Gratitude makes us more humble. And true humility makes us more thankful. So, there is a it is very offensive to God for us not to be for us not to be thankful. It's very offensive to God. Because what is Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is the acknowledgement that what he we have, He made the opportunity for, He gave the strength to do, He gave the skills, the gifts for it, that even that which I think I've earned, all of the glory for that goes to God, not me. 
He opens doors. He closes doors. All of that belongs to God. Now, if uh, I want to, I want to say this again. Uh, when we receive true humility, we develop a sense of gratitude, a recognition that life is an incredible gift. Gratitude makes us more humble. Our increased humility makes us ever more able to experience God's bountiful gifts. And that which he's willing to give everybody bountifully is love, joy, peace, grace, righteousness, holiness, all of those things. Not money and possessions. Because if that's the case, then what about all of his children that live in someplace else in this world and yet have virtually nothing? I have a, I remember my first trip to Africa. I had never seen such poverty. And that poverty, 95% of all the people that lived there lived in that kind of poverty. God didn't love them. Christians, powerful people, sweet people of God. God didn't love them. So the idea that rich, that becoming rich is proof that God loves you is foolishness. And the real sad thing is when you see people that have been blessed with stuff that don't have gratitude and humility. Why? I earned this. I did this with my own hands. I got this. Oh, like Cain and Abel? Abel brought a sacrifice to God that God produced. He only tended the sheep. He didn't grow the sheep. But Cain, he brought a sacrifice to God of that which he earned by the sweat of his brow. He wanted God's approval on his work. Abel wanted to be accepted by God by coming God's way. And then, as it still is now, those that are trying to earn their way to God are always angry at and want to destroy those that are able to receive God's love and blessings without earning it. Let's go on. Uh, some of the signs that we're developing uh, humility in our lives are as follows. An increased sense of gratitude. If I'm truly, if true humility, spiritual humility is being developed by the grace of God in my life, and I am cooperating with that, one of the first things that I will notice is I have an increased sense of gratitude. And I want to give thanks. And it's not something I'm compelled to do. It's something I do because God moves me to do it. The second sign is a growing willingness to serve others instead of being served. You can tell the difference between the spiritually immature and the spiritually mature. The spiritually immature, no matter how long they've been saved, come to church to get. And they're dependent upon what they get in church to stay saved. But the spiritually mature come to serve, come to minister, not be ministered to, because their relationship with God is supplying what they need between them and him. And so they're, they're in true humility and true uh, relationship with God. They want to give rather than get, because it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. 
Without humility, we serve ourselves, our old self. Take it in again. When humility is operating in our lives, we are able to serve others because we are focusing on ourselves less. Humility makes us more sensitive to the needs of others and more willing to do what we can to help and encourage them. If I'm humble, I know that what I have, I didn't deserve. I didn't earn it. God has given it to me. He's given me the opportunity, the ability, the empowerment. The, he's opened doors. He's, he's whatever. I can't take credit for that. I'm, I give him the honor and the glory for it as demonstrated by my thankfulness. The sacrifice of thanksgiving, which is the fruit of our lips, which is well-pleasing to God. My true, genuine thanksgiving is a demonstration of my spirit of humility. And when I understand that what I have have is a product of that, uh, of God's love and not a, a product of what I've earned for my glory, I am thankful, but that thankfulness causes me to realize that I'm a debtor, not to other people, but to God, for him to be able to use me as a conduit to do for others what was done for me because I don't deserve what he's done for me any more than anyone else doesn't deserve it. When humility is operating in our lives, we're able to see others because we are focusing on ourselves less. Humility makes us more sensitive to the needs of others and more willing to do what we can to help and encourage them. So, there is such thing as service. Okay? And I know the primary service we talk about is church service or worship service. I don't go home and spend time with my wife and live with my wife out of service. That's out of relationship. It's what the Lord, it's what my family does outward that's service. That which doesn't benefit me but benefits others is service. But I, it takes true humility demonstrated by genuine thankfulness for me to give true service because it's not about what I get out of that service. It's about what others are getting out of that service because I've already received. God's already blessed me. He's already given to me. I'm giving this to others. One thing I learned many, many years ago because he taught me was I had questions, I had needs. He would show me things in the Word. He would give me understanding of those things. And they would change my life. They would affect my life. They would bless me. But then he would put in me a desire to share that with others. And they don't have to give me credit for that. He gets the credit. He was the author of what he did in me and what he says through me to others, of, even if it's that same thing. I only received it. And it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. I was blessed by receiving. So now I want him, I want him to use me to give to others and they don't have to give me any credit. They don't have to give me any thanks. They need to give God the credit and give God the thanks because that's true service. The problem is, is our service humble service or self service? The problem that we face is what may look like true service to others may instead actually be us serving ourselves in ways which we're not even aware of. Because at the deepest part of us, the real reason we're doing what we're doing is the benefit. So 
somebody asked me to go preach, am I going to for the Lord to use me as a conduit, or am I going because when all that's done, they're going to give me an offering? Uh, I don't work for man. God's my employer. The labor's worthy of his hire, yes. He may use people to pay me his hire for me using his terminology. But it's not about how much I get or don't get. I know preachers that go and preach places and the offering isn't what they expected. And they're not happy about that. But I also know they go places that they get a lot more than they expected. They don't give any of that back. So if, I, if, if I'm being tested by God to see whose glory I'm seeking, if I don't get as much as I think I should get, uh, I should not have a different attitude toward the, the givers as when I'm given more than I expected. If my purpose is serving God and being his conduit, then what I'm given, how much I'm given, or if I'm given anything, or if in some situations I've been in where he tells me I'm not allowed to receive anything, it's a test. Why am I here? Why am I here? Well, do you have so much money you can afford to not receive an offering? <laughs> no. Everybody can always use more money. And I, more means I've got more to give. So, yeah, I'll take all the money the Lord's willing to trust me with as long as I can be trustworthy with it, not use it for myself, but spend it in a, according to his will, according to his plan, his purpose with it. But <laughs> he's the giver. I work for him. He's my employer. And I work for other people. Now, when I, whether I'm ministering here or I'm ministering in someone else's pulpit, what they deign to give me, hopefully, is what God tells them to do. But whether or not I receive it is also between the Lord and I. Because I don't ever want my motives to be what I'm going to get out of that. What I get out of that. Uh, the other problem I have is when I'm not charging anybody for ministry and then they take my min- what, what the Lord's used me to do and charge others for it. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. The only time I have made some peace with that is if I'm going someplace and ministering and they're, they're from their perspective, giving me an offering or an honorarium, and then they sell the recordings of that to help recoup, recoup what they give us. That's, if that's their faith, the way they're doing that, so be it. But if other people take those and sell that, and I didn't sell it, they received it freely, I've given it freely, and them they're going to charge for what I've given freely? No, no, I'm not happy with that. Because <clears throat> they've undermined my giving and they have perverted my gift. Jesus' name. There are uh, two patterns of activity which look like self, look like ministry, but are counterfeits in the same way self-abasement is a counterfeit of humility. The first pattern is suppressing our personalities to meet the needs of others, thus becoming doormats and allowing others to run roughshod over us. This is not service. It is not what God expects, and it's not his will. 
allowing ourselves to be used and abused serves the best interests of no one. Now, yes, he said, turn the other cheek. Yeah. But he didn't tell me to stand there while they turn the other cheek every hour of every day the rest of my life. If I'm doing it because he said do it, fine. If I'm doing it because I'm afraid to stand up for myself, uh, because I'm afraid to do the will of God and what he's told me to do is contrary to what these people want, it is adjusting what the Holy Ghost tells me to say so that I don't upset, get anybody upset with me so their opinion of me doesn't change. That's wrong service. That's self-service. That's not service to God. That's not service to God. The second pattern is those who appear to be serving God but are actually serving their own addictive needs to be approved and accepted. Those who serve to get approval are the people who battle burnouts and weariness. They seem to always be going through a crisis of faith. When I am serving, loving others for the purpose of getting them to love me back, God's not involved in that. So it's all coming from my energy and my focus. And I'm doing it. My, my, my conscious motives may be right, but my subconscious motives are wrong. The motives of my heart are different than the motives of my mind because if I'm doing it to get approval, if I'm acting in such a way so that people will brag on me, it's not true service. It's self-service. But people get the Holy Ghost. Yeah, I know. Yeah, results are the great justifier of wrong motives. Results are always misused as justification to keep our wrong motives. I, uh, as I've already said, those who serve to get approval are people who battle burnout and weariness. They seem to always be going through some kind of crisis. I was ministering for a really good young man, uh, was doing what seemed to be a really great work for God. But he was wearing himself out. And I, I was preaching for him, and I, he and I got in the car after service. And uh, we were riding to get something to eat. And uh, he didn't know me very well, or he would have known he was being set up. I said, uh, you really do have a burden for the lost, don't you? He said, yes. I said, you really do have a passion for the lost, don't you? He said, yes. I said, you really do love the lost, don't you? He said, yes. And I looked at him and said, and that's the problem. It's your burden. It's your passion. It's your love. It's not his burden. It's not his passion. It's not his love. He looked at me. I said, I, I lived what you're living. I live what you're living when you're passionate about the lost, burdened for the lost, love the lost, and going 90 miles an hour all the time trying to win the lost, whether God's sending you or not. And I said, I put pressure on me and put pr- that, and then by that I put pressure on everybody else. We got to win the lost, got to win the lost. Until I, it just wore me out. I wore everybody else out. And eventually, I got sick, and 
And I said to him, God taught me that I had to come to the end of myself. And I shocked him further. I said, I don't care whether the lost go to hell or not. He looked at me. I said, because now the burden I have for the lost is his burden, and I'm a conduit for it. It's not mine. He gets the glory. The passion I have for the loss is his passion. It's not mine. I'm only the conduit for it. He gets the glory. The love that I have for the lost is uh, not my love. It's his love, and I'm only the conduit for it, and he gets the credit. He gets the burden. And here's the other thing. Because it's his burden, it's his love, it's his passion. I have rest, and I'm not worn out. I don't wear other people out because he ministers through me. I'm not doing it for him. The Pentecostal prepositions live for God, work for God. Sorry. That's why people wear out, they get weary, they backslide. And it was those people Jesus was talking to that said, Come unto me, Matthew 11, verse 29, I think it is. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Laboring and heavy laden, and according to the scholars, those Greek words translated labor and heavy laden, it's talking about all this the people that are, that are so burdened down trying to do good, trying to do right, trying to serve everybody, and they're weighted down with it. And they, he said, come, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke up on you. It's not his yoke without him in it. He's in the yoke, and he's inviting me to get yoked up with him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me that I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. It's comfortable. It fits well. It doesn't bind, and my burden is light. It's not hard to live for God. If I live for God, if it's hard to live for God, I'm not doing it his way. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. When I'm resting in him and he is working through me, then I have Peace, and he always puts back the virtue he takes out in service and ministry so that I don't ever get weary. Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Weariness causes us to faint. So if I put myself under pressure, pressure produces expectations. Expectations produces frustration, especially when they're not met. And if I'm under pressure, there's no amount of expectation that can be satisfied. So pressure produces frustration. Produce, frustration produces weariness. Weariness causes me to quit, and none of that is of God. And that's the reason we're not receiving the harvest he promised, because of those things. So he's called me to him for him to do it through me. Paul said, Galatians 2, verse 20, which is going to be the focus of part three of this series. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When I die out to me and my need to, for approval and my service to my self-service to get people's 
approval, God then can flow through me. When people are involved in self-service, they cannot trust God when things are going wrong because they feel that their service should should exempt them from bad things happening to them. Oh, that is so true. One of the truest indicators that your motive and service is wrong is when things go bad and you don't have the results from your service that you expected. And now you, you pout, you pitch a fit. You don't pray because God has let me down. Really? Really? So you, you paid a, you, your service pays a premium on your insurance policy to exempt you from pain, problems, and pressure. Wrong motive. Wrong motive. It all comes from shame because shame wants to be approved. And we want God to approve. He approves us by giving us results and by blessing us, etc. On the surface, these people seem to be the most faithful, always putting God and church ahead of everything to the detriment and destruction of family, health, etc. They're afraid to not serve because they're afraid of being rejected. Let me tell you something. God works through me. If I'm surrendered to God, I become his, and he's going to take care of me if I will let him. In reality, these that are pressing, pressing, pushing, just whatever, in reality, they're trying to improve their self-image in their own eyes by doing an abundance of good works for God. When their efforts fail to make them feel better, they end up resenting God, the church, and everyone who has tried to minister to them because all of their service has not produced what they expected it to produce. Those that are trying to serve through self-service, which looks like spiritual service, end up with addictive service. Anytime we use a substance or an activity to keep from dealing with our failures or our feelings, to make us feel better for the short term, to try to fulfill an inner emptiness that only our relationship with God can truly fill, we are using that substance or activity addictively, including service. Service. Now, yes, I know when I was a kid, Going to church seven nights a week in a revival was not a big deal. And long revivals, was that was expected. Yeah, yeah. I understand that. But I, as I've grown older, I understand that I'm not only called to be a man of God, I'm also called to be a husband and called to be a father. And those things take some time. And if I'm trusting him and I'm submitted to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows what he expects of me. And he will make the time and place as I follow his direction to do those things. But if I'm addictively giving myself to stuff that takes me away from those activities because I want to be approved of by God, that is an addiction. An addiction. Some are as addicted to Christian ministry as any drug addict, alcoholic, and glutton is addicted to their addiction. Many who are constantly involved in religious activity do not choose to do so. They need to do so because they need what they get out of it. It's not what God is getting out of their service. It's not about what others are 
are receiving through through them by their service. It's what they're expecting to get out of it. Others are addicted to other kind of activity, uh, shopping, exercise, work, you name it. I can be addicted to anything when it has control over me and I'm expecting it to be my God. Anything I give myself to the point that I'm expecting that activity to produce in me what God alone gives me through his love, that's an addiction. Whether the activity appears to be good or is actually bad for us, if it is participated in addictively, it is evidence of a lack of true humility. I'm not humble before God. I haven't acknowledged that he is my source and that he created me for me to need him. And I am resisting that. I don't want to need God. I want to be independent of God. I want to be able to earn my own way. Good luck with that. And I don't even believe in luck. Hunger and emptiness can only be filled by relationship with Jesus, not by any kind or amount of religious activity or any other kind of activity. Our involvement in the kingdom of God must be a manifestation of our relationship with God. This is, I'm concluding this lesson with this, this statement. Our involvement in the kingdom of God must be a manifestation of our relationship with God, not an attempt to earn approval from God or from others. If that's our motive, it's not pleasing to God. It's an unrighteous motive. It's unacceptable to God, and he will not bless it. He will not bless it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the Lord, by his grace, would give us a revelation and let us see ourselves with his eyes, both you and I, that we might see ourselves with his eyes from his perspective, that we might see our motives from his perspective, that we might see our, our activities from his perspective, that we might see our service from his perspective and know what is from him and what is not, and that we might acknowledge that only him as the source of the energy and ability to do that service can please God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God bless you. Amen.